0: If you'd like to and didn't get one, you can get up and grab a printed message. I think they have a blue cover this week, and those notes are more extensive, and there's a lot of verses I don't have time to refer to in the message in those notes, and all of the printed notes um, are on the church website, going back 25 years worse, so you can access them there if you'd like. Um, You remember last time, if you can think back that far, three weeks ago, uh, we dealt with the verses dealing with the end times and the great apostasy that's going to happen, how the man of lawlessness is going to come on the scene and deceive um, basically the whole world except for those who are God's chosen ones, and uh, it's going to be a rather... uh, Rather frightening time as uh, he will deceive many. And then it said that even God would send a deluding influence on these people because they did not uh, believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And so, picking up in verse 13, Paul writes But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. From the beginning, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and... God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Over the 40 years now that I've been a pastor, I have sadly watched many who one time professed to know the Lord turn away from the faith that they uh, one time professed. Some of those have even been pastors um, and Christian leaders. Many have been involved in serving the Lord in some way. Some of them have been missionaries. But now, they're, they're not walking with the Lord. They don't go to church anywhere. If you talk to them, they're critical Uh, cynical about Christians and the Christian faith. Often they don't know what they believe, but they do know what they don't believe. They do not believe any longer the evangelical faith that they once uh, held to, and they don't want anything to do with it. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, because if you remember, Jesus told a parable about the sower who went out to sow, and some of the seed, he said, fell on the rocky soil. It was thin soil that had a rock-hard layer underneath, and and it sprouted up quickly, but then it didn't have enough root down into the moist lower ground, and so when the sun beat on it, it died out, and Jesus said that the sun represented trials and hardships that come on people. So, there are some who make a profession of faith, they quickly uh, you know, sprout up in their faith, but then they just don't endure trials well. And then Jesus said, some of the seed fell among the thorns, and that was a little more gradual dying out process, as the thorns grew up and choked out the word, and it was not fruitful, and Jesus said that the thorns represented the worries of this world, and the deceitfulness of wealth. In the Gospels, Jesus saw some who had professed to be his followers turn away after he taught some hard hard things there in John chapter 6. Even the, uh, the Apostle Paul also, who wrote these words, saw many who deserted him, some of them turned against him in a more aggressive way, And so it happens, but it's always grievous when it happens, isn't it? Some of us have loved ones who have turned away from the Lord, and it it really weighs on your heart. Now, after Paul describes these disturbing and troubling events of the end times, when this man of lawlessness is going to come to power, worldwide power, I take it, and deceive many with satanic miracles... God, he says, will even send a deluding influence on the world so that they will believe this lie that this Antichrist is God and come into judgment. Paul now turns a corner and reassures these new believers in Christ who are under persecution that they won't be part of this great apostasy that's going to come on the world because God has loved and chosen them for salvation God called them, Paul says, not for judgment, but so that they may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a summary of verses 13 and 14. But Paul goes on to show that such certainty does not mean they can just kick back and coast into heaven, just because they are God's chosen ones. But rather, in verse 15, he shows that they need to stand firm in the midst of their trials and persecutions, and they need to hold to the apostolic teachings that they had received. And then, in verses 16 and 17, Paul concludes this section with what we might call a prayer wish, now may the Lord, it's a prayer um, that he is offering up, and He is asking that the Lord, who has loved us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope through the gospel, will comfort and strengthen uh, their hearts, our hearts, in every good work and word. And so Paul is showing us here how we can stand firm when we encounter trials, as we all surely do and will. He's saying that to stand firm, And not fall away in your trials. Keep God's perspective with regard both to eternity and to time. First of all, we need to note that the need during a time of trial and times when spiritual deception is all around us, as is going to increase in the end times, the need is to stand firm and hold to the apostolic teachings. The only command in verses 13 to 17 is in verse 15, and remember it's given to persecuted believers. They're new in their faith, less than probably 18 months in the Lord, and they're going through horrific persecution. Here's the command. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. One of the main ways Satan gets people who have professed faith in Christ to turn away is trials. And so it's vitally important when someone comes to faith, teach them how to stand firm when trials hit because trials do come. And invariably <clears throat> the enemy is going to come to them in a time of trial and whisper You know, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Or maybe God loves you, but he's he's helpless. He can't do anything about it. Because obviously, if he loved you and could do something about it, you wouldn't be in this mess. And so, Paul emphasizes two things that you have to, excuse me, cling to by faith in a time of persecution or trials. God's sovereignty and God's love. They're both vital. Paul emphasizes how God sovereignly called and chose us, you, to salvation through the gospel in verses 13 and 14. And he did that because he loved you, which he emphasizes in verse 13 and in verse 16. So hold firmly to both of those in times of trial and the enemy cannot destroy your faith. That theme occurs in a number of places in the Bible. I, I only have time to share one. In First Peter, uh, the whole book of First Peter is written to a persecuted church, and <clears throat> in First Peter five six through ten, Peter says this: Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may <clears throat> he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, excuse me, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, and after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so notice how Peter is saying many of the same things Paul is saying in our text. That God is sovereign. He mentions God's mighty hand. He mentions that God has called you to his eternal glory. He mentions that God is able to bring relief from suffering when it is his will to do so. So God is sovereign. He says uh, that we are to resist the enemy, firm in our faith. That's the same idea when Paul here calls the Thessalonians to um, stand firm and hold to the teachings of the faith. And he says that God cares for you. That's the same idea, saying he loves you, he cares for you. So... Uh, First thing then, coming back to our text, is stand firm. And it's a present tense verb indicating this isn't a one-time deal. This is an ongoing thing that we're going to face every time we encounter trials. The need is stand firm. So we could translate, keep standing firm. Back in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, Paul wrote, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And so, the very first need that you, um, when you encounter a trial, is stand firm in the Lord, in the truth that is in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean denying your feelings. Sometimes you encounter Christians who kind of keep a stiff upper lip, but inside they're dying, and there's a disparity between their feelings and what they're professing, and it's all right to cry, When you're in a trial or when you lose a loved one or when some difficult thing happens to you. That's not unspiritual, but beneath it all, there ought to be that firm trust in the Lord that says, I know that God is sovereign. I know that God loves me. I know that he's going to bring me through this trial stronger than before. He has a reason for it, and so you stand firm. I love the Psalms, as I've told you many times, I read one every morning and uh, just pray those Psalms back to the Lord, pray them for my family, that kind of thing. But Psalm 57 is a great Psalm. David is in a cave and you got this mad King Saul and his troops, a whole army that are trying to find David and kill him. Now, let me ask you, would you be thinking about writing a song in those situation, that situation? I don't think I would. I'd be going, God, get me out of here, save me, you know, that kind of thing. But David wrote this wonderful Psalm 57, and he repeats himself, and I, I take it he's, he's preaching to himself, and you've you got to do that in time of trial. Soul, <laughs> you've got to stand firm. Soul, stand firm. And that's kind of what David's doing. Look what he says in Psalm 57, 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. He's, he's assuring himself it is. And then he says, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. So you can see his determination there where his feelings are fighting his mind. He knows the Lord is there. He knows the Lord is solid trust in him, but man, he's afraid. He's hiding in this cave. Um, I went to Sunday school last week. I normally don't get to go, and I found out that uh, Larry Kane stole my thunder because he uh, used an illustration. I'd already had these notes prepared two weeks ago when I hurt my back, but uh, he used an illustration I had in my notes, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, Concerns a Scottish preacher named A.J. Gossip. He lived from 1873 to 1954, and um, in 1927 his wife died rather suddenly and unexpectedly, and he preached what now is a famous sermon called, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? And it shows a balance between his genuine sorrow in losing his wife, and at the same time his faith in the Lord. Here's how he concluded that sermon. He said, I don't think you need to be afraid of life. Our hearts are very frail. And there are places where the road is very steep and very lonely. But, here's his faith, we have a wonderful God. And as Paul puts it, what can separate us from his love? Not death, he says immediately, pushing that aside at once, is the most obvious of all impossibilities. No, not death. For standing in the roaring of the Jordan, cold to the heart with its dreadful cheer chill and very conscious of the terror of its rushing, I too like hopeful, and here he's referring to Pilgrim's Progress, which I trust you've all read more than once. If you haven't, you need to. But he says, I too like hopeful, can call back to you who one day in your turn will have to cross it. Be of good cheer, my brother. For I feel the bottom, and it is sound. Great, great words. Now, Satan likes to undermine truth. And in every age, new heresies flood into the church. And just during the time I've been a pastor, a new one has cropped up, and it has engulfed many. It is called open theism. Uh, it is the view, and, and their, their motive is fine. They're trying to defend God from being responsible when trials hit his people and get him off the hook, so to speak. And so they say that God is good and God means well, but that God cannot know the choices that people make until they make them. And so they're bringing down his omniscience and his sovereignty and saying he really doesn't control the future, but he's got a fair idea what will happen, just knowing human nature. But, you know, say a drunk driver T-bones your car and kills your wife. God weeps with you, but he's really sorry he couldn't do anything about that. And so they're trying to bring comfort, but I think they're robbing people of comfort. Um, this heresy is taught in one of the churches here in town, and some years ago I went to a funeral at that church, and uh, the man delivering the message, one of the associate pastors, he's, it was a young woman who had died uh, in her 20s or 30s, and he made this comment. He said, this... Young woman's death was not in God's will. And I was stunned. I sat there thinking, really? What are the options? You know, did Satan pull one over on God? Was God trying to prevent it and he couldn't? Did it hit God broadside like the driver hit her car and killed her? So he's trying to bring comfort to that family, but in my opinion, he just robbed them of comfort in the whole situation. And Paul has just shown, even in the end times, when this horrible man of lawlessness comes to world power, it's all in the sovereignty of God for his purpose. And it's not going to take God by surprise. Uh, I don't have time to go there, but the, the great story on this, if you want to read it, is Genesis 37 to 50. Story of Joseph how his brothers sold him into slavery, he does the right thing, gets thrown in prison, sits in that stinking Egyptian dungeon for several years. Finally, and he didn't know the end of the story. You've got to keep that in mind as you read it. You know the end, right? He gets out, is elevated to second under Pharaoh, and then his brothers are fearful he's going to get revenge, and there's that great line in Genesis 50:20 where he says to his brothers, you guys meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to bring about this present result. See, he's trusting in the goodness and sovereignty of God. And that's what we have to do. So stand firm. And then secondly, Paul says, hold to the apostolic teachings. Verse 15. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And that word hold to means keep a firm grip on it. Hang on. Now you say, well, what does Paul mean by traditions? Well, <clears throat> the word means that which is handed down or handed over, and it focuses on the derivative nature of our faith. In other words, Paul wasn't making this stuff up. Uh, Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, it does not originate, that is the Christian faith, in fertile men's fertile imaginations. It rests on the facts of the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And for us, these traditions are embodied in the documents of the New Testament. Now, as you know, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church put a premium on early church traditions, that we've got to keep these traditions that have been handed down in the centuries after the Apostles. But the problem is, often these traditions supersede the Bible in their authority, and so when they contradict the Bible, these churches end up following the traditions and setting the Bible aside. And so you, you end up with doctrines like transubstantiation, that the elements of the communion become the actual body and blood of the Lord, uh, the immaculate conception of Mary, praying to Mary and the other saints, You've got idols in the Catholic Church, icons in the Orthodox Church, purgatory. There are many other teachings. They have no basis in Scripture, but the traditions trump the Scripture. So they go with tradition, and they appeal to a verse like verse 15 uh, for justifying their emphasis on church tradition. Paul, though, was referring here to the fact that his Oral teachings and his written letters did not originate with him. He received them directly from the Lord. And the same with all of the apostles. They were all eyewitnesses of Christ. They had to be with him during his earthly ministry. They were simply passing on what Jesus had revealed to them about the Father and other spiritual truth. And uh, there are places where Paul and Jesus made it very clear following traditions is dangerous if those traditions are not the revealed will of God. And so we can't just blindly follow traditions. We've got to go back. The Word of God, as we have it in the Old and New Testament, is our only source of spiritual truth. And if traditions follow the Word, fine, we can use them. If they don't, we need to set them aside. So... Paul is saying here then, stand firm, and the way you stand firm is by holding to the apostolic truth that has been revealed. Now, how do we do that? Well, Paul goes on to show we need God's perspective, first with regard to eternity, and then with regard to time. Uh, To stand firm and not fall away during trials, Paul says, keep God's perspective with regard to eternity eternity. And here our main focus is verses 13 and 14. You know, when I was a boy, my mother used to frustrate me because I would be having a problem, and I would tell my problem to my mother, and her common response was, oh, in 10 years you won't even remember this. And I would think, yeah, but it's not 10 years from now. It's right now, and I am remembering this, and I want an answer now. But you know, it is helpful during trials to step back and kind of get the eternal perspective on it. To the fact that life is short, soon we'll all be with the Lord, and uh, Paul here sweeps us back to eternity past and forward to eternity future to give us God's perspective on what really are momentary trials. First of all, in eternity past, he emphasizes that God chose you for salvation. That's verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he's chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, just before we get into this, note how Paul mentions all three members of the Trinity, and he doesn't stop to explain that doctrine to these new believers. He had taught them about the Trinity to ground them in the truth. And so here he mentions in verse 13, God, the Father, the Lord, Jesus Christ, and uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, Verse 13 stands in contrast, starts with but, to verses 10 through 12. And that's where Paul describes the great judgment that's coming on those who reject the gospel So rather than being in that company, Paul says, but you are going to be delivered from God's judgment and look forward to salvation because from the beginning God chose you for salvation. And so because it was of God, Paul says we're under obligation. The word should means we're obligated to give thanks to God because he's the one who ordained their salvation. Now, before we go on here. Let me mention there's a textual variant in verse 13 that's very very difficult to determine which was the original reading. Some of you have an ESV Bible, and it says uh, God chose you first fruits, and the New American Standard and some other versions say God chose you from the beginning. Uh, If the original reading is from the beginning, and I lean that way, then it parallels Ephesians 1 4 and some other verses that say the same thing. In Ephesians 1 4, Paul says God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So that may well be the meaning here. If it's first fruits, then what Paul is saying is that these people were some of the first converts to come to the gospel in that region of the Gentile world. Either way, though, the point is they were believers because God chose them for salvation. And God's choosing people for salvation doesn't mean, as is commonly thought, that God looked down through history and went, oh, yeah, there's Bill and Bob and Susie and Mary, and they're going to choose me. I can see that, so I'll put them on my list. That is not what choice means. It means that God chose those people who believe in him, and he did that before the foundation of the world. And so when we choose to believe in Christ, the prior cause is because God chose us to believe in Christ. He is the author of our salvation. Now, I know there are many, some of you, who struggle with the doctrine of election, but let me point out, Paul never presents that truth to get into theological controversy. Never. He always presents that truth to comfort believers. I, I, you can look it up, get out of Concordance Bible, um, you know, it shows all the verses on election, predestination, choice. Always, it's to bring comfort to believers, often those who are being persecuted. And it is a great comfort when you're going through trials to know that you're a Christian because God sovereignly chose you for himself. He gave you to his son, and Jesus in John 6 says, all whom the Father's given me are going to come to me, and everyone who comes to me I'm not going to cast out. And I came for this very reason... That of all the Father gave me, I'm going to raise him up on the last day. That's his promise to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. just want to point out four aspects of God's choice based on our text here. First of all, God chose you because he loved you. And he mentions it twice, once in verse 13 and again down in verse 16. And he's really repeating what he already told them in 1 Thessalonians 1.4 and He said, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. His choice of you. He chose you. And the same thing in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Paul says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. The concept goes all the way back into the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 7 and 8, Moses wrote this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it's just, God loved us. That's why he chose us why did he love us we don't know certainly wasn't because of anything in me or you i uh, read a thing recently where i think a an old lady who was on her deathbed told spurgeon she said i've long believed in god's ele- no, doctrine of election because if he had seen what i would be after he chose me he wouldn't have chosen me <laughs> and i think we can all relate to that can't we because we've all failed the lord so many times we think If it's based on anything in me, it wouldn't have happened. Thankfully, it's not. It's his sovereign choice. The second thing to note is God chose you for salvation. You know, salvation is one of those um, stained glass words that we toss around as Christians and we don't pause to think, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? Well, some of you maybe have been rescued. You know, I saw a thing on the news last week. Some guy drove into one of the... Um, flash flood areas down in Phoenix, and he nearly died, and they had to rescue him that 's what it means to be saved it 's to be rescued by God and uh, it stands in contrast to this condemnation we studied in the last section of Second Thessalonians, where these people are going to be condemned. Because of their sin. 2 Thessalonians one nine says, These unbelievers will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So to be saved, to be rescued, we're saved from God's eternal judgment on us because of our sin. I think you all know the story of John Newton. He was a drunken sailor, foul-mouthed, Man, He became the captain of a slave ship that would round up African people and herd them in horrible conditions and deliver them over to the uh, West for profit. And then he got saved and uh, became a pastor, wrote Amazing Grace, as you know. But in his study, he painted above the mantle of his study Deuteronomy 15.15 from the King James that reads like this. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He always wanted to remember, I was a slave to sin, and God redeemed me. Don't forget that. Especially if you, like me, you grew up in a Christian home, you can go, oh yeah, salvation, ho hum, move on down there. No, don't do that. Stop and remember. If God had not broken into my life and saved me, I would be fast bound on the track to hell. Salvation. The third thing to remember here is God's choosing you makes your salvation secure. And that's Paul's point here. He's trying to assure, reassure these Thessalonians that because God chose them for salvation, God isn't going to drop them in the middle of the process. He's going to complete it. And if God determined before the foundation of the world to save you, do you think he's going to drop you? No. He will finish the process. Even if persecuted, you're persecuted by godless people, he is going to save you. And then finally, notice that God's choosing you is effected by sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. Paul, I think, may mention... The work of the Holy Spirit before he mentions faith in the truth, because until the Spirit works in a person's heart, they cannot believe. God has to convict them through the Spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as Jesus said in John 16. And the Spirit has to open a person's blind eyes, 2 Corinthians 4.4, or they can't even see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the Spirit comes in, does that, then... We believe, and faith and repentance are gifts from God. I understand sanctification here to refer to the positional sanctification we get when we are saved, and that means the Spirit sets us apart from the evil world unto God. Sometimes, when you talk about the doctrine of election, I get people who ask the question, well, how can I know if I'm elect? Now, listen carefully. Here's the answer. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternal life? If you can say yes, and you know he's changed your heart. I used to love the things of the world. Now, I fight those things, and I love the things of God. God changed your heart because you believed in Christ. That didn't come from you. That came from God. And it means you're one of his chosen. And if you're saying, I haven't done that yet. How do I know if maybe I'm not elect? Well, the Bible is very clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on his name. Cry out to him. Say, God, save me. Save me and don't let go until he does. And it's all of the Lord. So Paul goes back into eternity past in verse 13. Verse 13. And he says, this truth of God's choosing you for salvation is going to enable you to stand firm when you face trials, when you persecuted for your faith. Then in verse 14, he looks ahead. In eternity future, God has destined you, he says, to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that's still a backward look at when they got saved, that you may gain the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has already mentioned that in Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 1, verse 12, he said, When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, in verse 10, and then 2 Thessalonians 1 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And then he adds, And you in him. You in him. According to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to Christ, God places you in Christ. In Christ. And so everything that's true of Christ is true of you. And when Jesus comes again, he's coming again in power and glory. Guess what? If you're in him, you're going to be glorified in him. That's the idea. We are so unified with Christ when we are saved, that when he is revealed in glory, we'll be revealed with him. I can't tell you exactly what that's going to mean, but we will share his glory. But often, the path to future glory lies through present trials, as we know, reading our Bible. Uh, And it's through those trials the Lord purifies us and refines us and gets us ready for heaven. I liked how one writer put it. He said, He, God, will never allow a trial in your life without a needs be on your part and a purpose of love on his part. There must be some need I have here in this trial to learn. So, Lord, show me, and I know you love me. And so, to stand firm and not fall away in a time of trial, Paul says, keep God's perspective with regard to eternity past. He chose you because he loved you. And eternity, future, you're going to share his glory. Then, in verses, that's in verses 13 and 14, the focus on eternity. In verses 16 and 17, Paul goes to time. And he says, to stand fast and not fall away during trials, keep God's perspective with regard to time. Uh, He goes back in time, and then he goes to the present and the future, and he, I think you need both perspectives, the eternal one and the temporal one. Here's what he says about the past. In the past, God has worked in our lives in salvation. That's verse 16. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Uh, again, before I look at that, just note how Paul elevates the Lord Jesus Christ He uses his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he puts him in front of the Father here. He could not do that if Jesus were not God. But he's referring in verse 16 to our salvation. Um, When God loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, at least when we came to know that, was the moment we got saved. And um, that's when we came to know Jesus died on the cross for me because he loved me. And we didn't know that before. And so when he says who loved us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, he's referring to the moment of our salvation. And there has never been a greater demonstration of the love of God than was shown that day on Golgotha when Jesus The eternal Son of God, who had taken on human flesh, died in the place of sinners. That's when He loved us. And when God broke into our lives with this good news about Jesus and we trusted Him for salvation, He gave us eternal comfort. That word means encouragement. Do you wrestle with discouragement? Boy, I do sometimes. You just get discouraged. Well, The answer there is, uh, think back to your salvation. You know, I, I could still be out in the world taking pleasure in wickedness, living for all the futile things the world does, but God in his mercy saved me and he saved you. And so when you're discouraged, look back to the fact that God saved you in Christ. And I don't see how you can stay discouraged when you think about that. And then, in the present and future, Paul shows that God is working to comfort us in the trials that we go through and to strengthen our hearts in every good work and word. He says, when he saved us, God gave us good hope by grace. It's good hope because it's certain hope. In other words, it's based on the promise of God. So it's not a bad hope, a false hope. It's good hope. And it's based on grace, God's undeserved favor. And it's hope because we haven't yet realized it. It's still future. When Jesus comes, we'll realize the fullness of our salvation. And then he prays in verse 17 that the Lord may comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And so Paul is praying that the sanctification we received at salvation will work its way out in practical sanctification as we walk with Jesus right now. And he mentions two things. Our works, and our good works, and our words. And they have to always go together. When Christians separate works and words, there's problems. Some people may be all works, but they never open their mouth and tell people about Jesus. Well, that's a problem because you know what? People are gonna think, boy, he's the he's the nicest man or woman, you know? What a good person. And they'll rack it up to goodness. And they'll never know the reason I'm good is because God had mercy on me as a sinner. So you gotta open your mouth and tell them the good news about Jesus. Otherwise, you know, they'll miss it. On the other hand, we all know people who are all talk but there's no works, and those who don't know Christ are rightly going to conclude, oh, those Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, because they'll see your works, which are lacking, and hear your words, which sound really good, and your works don't back up your words. So you've got to have works as the platform, the foundation, and then open your mouth and tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> I've told you before, I, I've gained more by reading Christian biographies than any other source except for reading the Bible itself. And uh, two times I've read the um, it's pretty thick biography of Adoniram Judson by Courtney Anderson called To the Golden Shore. How many of you have read that book? Good, a few of you. That book is, you can't read that book and not be moved. Just the trials that Judson went through in his attempt to take the gospel to Burma. By the way, Judson and his wife were the first American missionaries sent from these shores to a foreign field. First ones. And he didn't take a furlough until 38 years later. And in that time, he had gone through just trial after trial after trial. He lost two wives. He lost several children. He saw zero response almost to the gospel, very little response to the gospel among the Burmese people. He was imprisoned for a year in a horrible death prison that the conditions were just horrific. Um, Here's what he said. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by the infinite love and mercy... I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. He believed in God's love and God's sovereignty. God ordained it, and he did it because he loved me. And he also said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Isn't that a great line? The future is as bright as the promises of God. And I hope none of us have to suffer as much as Adoniram Judson did. But, you know, whatever your trials are, you can stand firm and you can hold to the truth that's in the New Testament if you keep God's perspective regarding time, regarding eternity. Let's bow together. Dear Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for the example of your faithful servants, Paul and Peter and John and all of the apostles and your saints in the Old Testament, some of whom went through horrific trials but stood firmly in your love and truth. Help us, Lord. I know some of my brothers and sisters right here are suffering and going through trials. I pray your comfort and encouragement would be with them. Give them eyes to see your great salvation. Give them hope in Christ And Father, if any are here who are outside of Christ, I pray that you would show them their desperate, desperate need to flee to the cross of Christ for mercy and forgiveness today. That they would not let the sun set without coming to Jesus in faith for salvation. We ask in his name. Amen.